buying crops on spec, an orange rind eating camel, and breaking Ramadan with dates. This week, we're in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we explore a different cool destination and try the cuisine that makes it unique. And this week, I'm visiting with Alice Morrison. She lives in a family compound in the tiny village of Imlil in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco. And Alice makes her living as an adventurer. She's written books and has a YouTube channel chronicling her treks across the desert the most recent of which featured the discovery of dinosaur tracks. Alice tells me about trekking across the desert or through the mountains with her Berber guides and camels, including her favorite beast of burden, Hamish. And of course, Alice and I talk food, like what you eat when you're walking across Morocco for seven straight months. We also talk about buying crops on spec and growing wheat for flour and all the veggies you need. Alice also tells me about her tight-knit community celebrating Ramadan and breaking the fast with dates. So we've got all that coming up, but if you like the podcast, do me a favor, take a second to give us a five-star review on your podcast app, whatever that might be. Be like Kohler underscore 77, who recently said, really like the diversity into what the subject is each week when stuck at home it's a nice way to hear about the rest of the world thanks Kohler. destination eat drink alice morrison welcome to destination eat drink it's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast thanks for making time for us today I'm very excited to be with you. Nothing I like more than eating and drinking. (laughs) It's a great topic, isn't it? So you uh, are a full-time adventurer. Full-time adventurer is not something that I remember my career counselor telling us about in high school. So tell me, how do you define full-time adventurer? What does it mean to you to be a full-time adventurer? I think for me, Part of it was it started really as bravado. I, I did a, mm. a mid-life change. I was the chief executive of a media development company, and I had, you know, I had a a, P, a personal assistant and a public relations department and forty staff, and I built the company up to kind of fifteen million dollar uh, turnover from nothing. And for a number of reasons, the company had to fold into another company. I had to make people redundant, had to make myself redundant. So I, I was left with this big gap, if you like, in my life. And actually, it was awful, obviously, to to have to do that to my staff and to the company I'd built up. But for me personally, it was a great thing because it forced me into a change, a change that I wanted. And a kind of reaction to that whole thing was I, I cycled across Africa. I, I entered the longest bike race on earth, the Tour de Frique, and cycled from Cairo to Cape Town. So that set me on the path of being an adventurer. And as I progressed on that path, because I'm quite an ambitious person, I thought, right, I'm going to start signing my emails, adventurer, Alice Morrison, <laughs> adventurer. Good, good. And then you have to live up to it. Simple as that. So that, now, now I kind of make my money by, well, some, enough money just about to scrape by on by doing adventures and writing and broadcasting about them. 
I thought we were crazy when we sold our house and moved to Hawaii without ever setting foot on the island before in our lives. And then I hear your story and I'm like, this is nothing. This is nothing compared to what Alice did. Did did you have anything in your makeup, in your mind, in your personality that you can point to and say, yeah, this was always the path that I thought I would go on? No, absolutely not. Um, I think what's interesting for me, I'm 58 now, so I've just had my birthday last Happy week. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you so much. And what I found is that now I feel I'm in the place doing the thing that all my previous life experiences have helped me to come to. So it's not so much that I ever thought, oh, I'll be an adventurer and explorer. Mm -hmm. But when I look back on my personality and all the things I've learned how to do, it's not such a leap. Although if you said kind of, you know, somebody who used to go to the Cannes Film Festival and to the BAFTAs and, and to film ceremonies and is now, you know, trekking across the Sahara, you'd probably think they're really worlds apart. But I think what brings them together is a, a flexibility of mind, I hope, and a, a, a certain degree of determination. And also, I think I'm circling back to my childhood because my parents were very adventurous when I was six weeks old, um, about very shortly after doing her law degree finals, my mum and dad got onto a boat and sailed to Africa. And I spent the first eight years of my life okay. being blissfully brought up in the middle of nowhere. There it is. <laughs> it's, it was ingrained. It was imprinted on your brain at a very early age, maybe. Um, I, I think this might be interesting because, uh, you know, I left, a, I left a corporate job as well. And, uh, you know, when I talk to people who used to who I used to work with, they have varying um, varying responses to my life now. And I wonder what do your former coworkers think when you tell them I'm living in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco and I'm a full time adventurer? I don't think anyone's ever been very surprised. I think because when I was working as a CEO, all my holidays, every holiday I had, I would do a challenge. I would go ice climbing in the Andes. I would um, cycle across the Atacama Desert. I would do something that involved extreme physical pain and <laughs> being outside a lot and, and sleeping in a tent. I remember once my secretary saying to me, Alice, you do realize what you've paid for that holiday where you'll be sleeping, sharing a tent with someone <laughs> you've never met and, you know, walking across Patagonia, you could have stayed in a six star hotel in Bangkok. <laughs> so I don't, I think in a way they weren't surprised. I don't think anyone was like, hugely shocked that I went off to do something so very, very different. I don't know. Maybe they were. And I've just blocked that out. They're like, that's just Alice. That's just how she is. Now, uh, you you make your home now in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco. And I think even adventurous travelers maybe aren't familiar with the Atlas Mountains. They maybe have heard of uh, Casablanca and Marrakesh, which are both in Morocco and are fairly well touristed, but I think the Atlas Mountains is very exotic to most uh, travelers. Give us an idea as to where are we talking about? What is the terrain like? Who lives there? What what are we looking at when we talk about this area of Morocco? Great question. So the Atlas Mountains is an enormous mountain range in North Africa. It stretches from, um, it actually stretches from the Atlantic Ocean 
and the Mediterranean Ocean all the way up from Morocco through Algeria into Tunisia. It's It was formed when the continents, Europe and um, Africa, squeezed together, squeezing, squeezing, squeezing the earth up. And the legend is it's called after Atlas, who was meant to hold up the world. He was, he was given the task by the gods of holding up the sky. Um, it is a very mountainous terrain. I live at 1,750 meters and my, you know, I live a day. Well, I've done it in a day actually, but it's really a two day hike from the summit of North Africa's highest mountain, which is 4,167 meters high. And that's Mount Tubkal. And, um, it's a very, quite varied terrain, but really to the, to, I guess most eyes, it's, it's very rocky. Um, there are small valleys and small patches of land which are sustainably farmed. The people are the Amazir people, the Berber people, and they speak Tashlehit and uh, Tamazirt and Rifi in the north, uh, which is a very different language from any other. At one point, the Amazir nation spread, uh, reached over the whole of North Africa and right down into West Africa. Uh, they're Muslim. The people are 99.9% .9 Muslim in the region. And in my village, Imlil, so I live in a very small village, but it's a, it's a bit like, if any of you have been to Nepal, it's a bit like a Nepalese hiking village because it's the start for many of the treks into the Atlas Mountains. These incredible, magnificent, spiny, rocky, juniper tree filled, but with surprising crevices of green and mountain streams and mountain goats and the smell of wild thyme and chamomile everywhere, these mountains. So the village I live in, you know, the, there's always mules braying as they're getting ready to be packed up to go hiking or guides waiting to take you somewhere and it, it's really a mountain village and very still I would say pretty traditional and I live in a traditional family compound with there's about 25 of us all together four four different couples with their children um some grandchildren some grandparents and me in my little house and my bedroom is right above the cow <laughs> okay, so you live above the barn, in essence, in this little uh, village in Imlil. Is that is that right, Imlil? Did I say that right? That's that you've said it beautifully, and it's about an hour and a half drive from Marrakesh, so okay. it's really not that far away. And I, I mean, I often go to Marrakesh once, twice a week for a day trip. Sometimes I just want. It sounds so weird, but sometimes I just want to leave the very traditional area I live in and go and, and look at, you know, girls in jeans and, and guys in shorts and have a Starbucks. We've got a Starbucks in Marrakesh. Oh, okay. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm like, oh, this is so Western and exciting. So I do that sometimes. Um, now you said uh, this is populated by the Berber people and uh, most of them are Muslim. I was doing a little research about this and I saw that at one time there were Berber Jews in Morocco, uh, most of them left for Israel and France, and only a few hundred still live in Morocco. I'm wondering, out of curiosity, is there any vestiges of this Jewish Berber community um, that you've run across in your travels around Morocco? So what, what happened? I mean, it's very interesting. The Jewish history in Morocco is extremely interesting and very rich and very deep. And it's highly valued by the Moroccans themselves. The king of Morocco has, has invested heavily in restoring Jew Jewish sites and Jewish heritage. So that's I think that's quite an interesting point for people. Yes, many Jews left in the diaspora. They went to Israel, but also many converted. So when Islam came to Morocco in the 
700s, um, there were Jewish communities and many converted to Islam over time. And then the other set, interesting example, is that there were many Jewish merchants involved in the great caravan trade, which uh, spread across Morocco from the, the Mediterranean coast, the Atlantic coast, all the way down into North Africa, where, you know, slaves, gold, spices and salt were all traded. And books, books and interesting things like ostrich feathers to make, you know, those giant hats that oh. the London soldiers wear. Right, you know, right. The great big, yeah, they were made from ostrich feathers imported from Morocco in, in days gone by. You've had to ride out the majority of the pandemic back in your home country of Scotland. And because of that, you had to postpone a big trek that you had scheduled across Morocco. What is the status of that right now? Are you able to reschedule it? Are you going to be able to go back out onto the trail? Well, actually, that's it's slightly more complicated than that. So actually, I spent the whole of the first 10, 12 months of lockdown in Morocco. Uh, so I went back. I was in England and then I flew back to Morocco on the 14th of March last year. And then it closed down behind me. It's like the doors shut behind me. And I was in lockdown in Morocco in my in my home with my the family I live in within this compound. So there are 25 of us isolating together. And the interesting thing in Morocco is we were not allowed out except with the government permission to go shopping locally. So I didn't walk more than two kilometers in um, over 14 weeks, which was torture for me. Yeah. But what I didn't have was the isolation. So I had no access to the outdoors and nobody did. We were not allowed to. It was a very strict lockdown. But what we all had was community because it's a much more communal way of life. So I was denied the outdoors and and that was important to me but on the other hand I had the you know the people I live with the four families in this compound so I was never lonely and that was wonderful when when Morocco came out of heavy lockdown which was in August last year I was due to go on a on a the last part of a three-part expedition across the whole of the country and this last part was from the Mediterranean Sea to through the Atlas Mountains actually to the gateway to the desert Wazazat and unbelievably, we managed to persuade the authorities and the government to let us do the trek. So we spent nearly well, spent just over two months, two and a half months walking uh, 1400 kilometers across the Atlas Mountains between August and Oct- the end of October. And so I had this wonderful, glorious freedom period um, and seeing as well how Corona affected very, very rural communities, which was extremely important. It was it was fascinating, the whole thing. And I found dinosaur footprints, which was fabulous. Uh, I saw that video. That was great. Yeah, so excited. I got so excited, overexcited. But so I managed to do and complete my trek. And then I came back to Britain to see my parents, Scotland, to see my parents for Christmas because I hadn't seen them since March and they're elderly. And, you know, it's kind of not fair. And also my brother is also abroad. And um, I got locked in. Morocco closed its borders on the 20th of December. And I've been stuck here until, inshallah, 10 days from now, I'll be flying back home. God willing, to my little village. What's your plan for any uh, future treks? Do you have any any plans of uh, getting out with the gentlemen and the camels uh, back on the trail again anytime soon? I do. I think when I go back to Morocco, I think like a lot of people, you know, it's, it's been quite a, a, a slightly stunning experience to have 
so much lockdown. I mean, I've been locked down in Britain for six months and I've written a book about my previous expedition. So I've, I've had some, I've had productive time. And of course, being with my family is very important. And, you know, being with my parents is extremely important. But I do feel like my life's been put on hold. And I think I'm not the only person. I think a lot of people feel like that. And I don't think I've been brilliant at lockdown. You know, I haven't learned another language or, I don't know, <laughs> become a yogi. or. And I struggled. I mean, I genuinely struggled with being stuck, not knowing when I could go back to my own home, you know, living in a single bed in my parents' spare room with the China cats. That's not what an adventurer <laughs> should be doing. Um, so blessings aside, and there have been lots, I, I really want to go and restart my life. And I think There'll be a transition period, I think, for a lot of us. You know, it's not as simple as lockdown opens and everyone's happy and it's all great. There's a lot of things have been lost in this period and I need to build up my work again. You know, travel writing has not exactly been popular. Nobody's commissioning. I have to build up my public speaking again. I have to build things and I am planning another big expedition for next year so I think in the interim I've, I've got to do some recce some serious reconnaissance about this expedition and that will take up the rest of this year I want to talk about food of course <gasps> yes <laughs> podcast about food and drink and where I'd like to start we'll, we'll talk more generally about you know uh, food in the Atlas Mountains but where I wanted to start was when you're out trekking it's fascinating to me because you have to bring everything with you. Um, and I've seen videos of how you trek, Alice, and you've got, you know, the camels are loaded down with stuff. But what is what is food like? How, how do you eat specifically and what do you pack? What kinds of food do you pack with you to have when you're out there hiking around the Atlas Mountains? Okay, it's a great question. So my recent expedition, I walked the whole length of Morocco, which is... It took me seven and a half months in all, and it was 4,000 kilometers. Wow. So this was a very big, you know, expedition. And we had six camels, three three men with me, my Amazir guides, my expedition companions, including Brahim and Addi, who were with me the whole time, and my favorite camel, Hamish. Um, <laughs> and the camels were there purely to carry the food and water. Now, we had three different legs. Uh, we had, for example, we did a leg across the Sahara Desert where water was a real issue. And we had to really be concerned about that. But for food, in terms of food, we had it organized. So we would have a, either a food drop or have access to supplies every 10 days, two weeks. Because you can't carry all of your provisions at yeah, once. Yeah, be impossible. You know, yeah. And also, you know, this... This for me is an expedition. Also for the men who I'm walking with, this is their whole lives. They spend their whole lives really trekking. I mean, Corona put an end to that, but they're on the road all the time. So you can't just feed them, you know, sardines and pasta all the time or else they, they die of scurvy. Um, <laughs> right. So it was very important that we had good food and good food on an expedition, honestly, is a really key thing that will give you success. I can tell you that 100% definitely. If you have decent food, you will have much more chance of successful expedition because the things we're doing are quite difficult and very intense, very long, very physically and mentally and emotionally draining. So food has a huge role to play. So what did we eat? Uh, I would always have porridge in the morning. I brought it, you know, just porridge made with water and um, sugar and uh, the dried milk. 
and a cup of coffee. The men would have tea, very, very sweet tea and bread uh, dipped in oil and maybe jam. Then we would stop for elevenses and we'd have a little packet of biscuits and an orange each. Each person would have an orange. And what you need to know is that camels love orange peel. <laughs> so we would all peel our oranges and then the camels would each get a section of orange peel and they'd be waiting or like sticking their noses in our in our hands trying to get it. So they adore it. Ha- you made Hamish very happy. Hamish loved his camel. Oh my goodness, but he was quite an aggressive person. So sometimes he'd be trying to steal the other's, oh, other's no. peel as well yeah the little camel fighting <laughs> then we, we would walk till lunchtime because the, the point is you walked we walked five hours fast a day and in some areas we covered 20 kilometers a day in the Sahara for example we covered 25 kilometers a day in five hours so we walked smartly because the camels are loaded you can't keep them on their legs all day over such a long period of time they also need to graze so once we bivouacked they would go off and graze on whatever was around you know to maintain their strength um, and we'd supplement with oats. So we would stop for, we would stop, unload the camels, put up our camp, bivouac, and then we'd have lunch whenever possible. So until it ran out after a food drop, we would have salad and sardines and fresh bread. And, you know, we would just chop up tomatoes, onions, peppers, cabbage, sometimes a tin of sweet corn as a treat. Then we would have, um, bread that we baked ourselves. There was a gas oven with us, um, powered by camping gas. So we'd, we'd cook the, the bread there and a tin of sardines each, which is, is actually the most fantastically healthy diet. Sometimes we'd, and then lots and lots of sweet uh, mint tea, or if we had mint, we didn't always have mint, or just sweet tea. So, you know, I would drink up to five glasses of tea when I was very dehydrated. It is the best recovery drink. We then uh, all be doing our own things in the afternoon. I'd be writing. The, the boys would be looking after the camels, doing some maintenance on the bivouac, baking bread, uh, getting things ready for the evening. And then we might have like a little snack at five o'clock, which would be fresh bread dipped in oil and sweet tea or spicy berba coffee, which is coffee made with a lot of spices, including chili, black pepper, cumin, cardamom, nutmeg. Um, and again, lots of sugar, sugar, a huge amount of sugar. But because we're walking, you burn it all off. Then at night, um, after the prayers, after evening prayers, we would have soup, thin, thin soup made with a packet, you know, like a nor soup just for the salt and the liquid. And then we would have a vegetable stew again with fresh bread. And then we'd finish it off with, um, verven, which is verbena, a kind of, uh, a herb which is slightly lemony and it's very good for sleep and digestion and then last prayers and then we'd all go to bed so we had a very strict routine when we ran out of food which we would do fresh food it would be pasta pasta Mm. and rice and there was one very sad time in the sahara when all we had left was oats so we had (laughs) oats with olive oil which is disgusting disgusting really and also the guys cracked me up so Addy poured in like half a bottle of olive oil into my porridge and then he added sugar it was like oh Oh. my god this is a low point (laughs) so you know what strikes me about this Alice is that 
you're burning so many calories. So you have to keep your energy up. You have to keep your strength up by eating right. You have to have protein. You have to have carbohydrates. You have to have sugar. You have to have all of these things. But also to keep yourself going mentally, you have to have at least a reasonable amount of variety and a reasonable amount of flavor. So it strikes me that these guys who are doing the drops for you are a very important part of the team as well. Where where do these drops come from? Do you contract them? You must contract them prior to you going out on your walk and say, okay, we know it's going to be in this spot when we get to XYZ place. Absolutely. So my expedition organizer is called Jean-Pierre Dachary. And if you come to Morocco, I can highly recommend his guest house, which is called Dar Daif, D-A-I-F, and is in Warzazat. And he also runs these incredible tours. So if you actually want to experience the true desert and the true, not touristic, actually what it's like to do a proper expedition trek. Um, I can't recommend them highly enough. And you can do short ones. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to give up seven and a half months of your life. <laughs> but he he's an expert in this. And we'd planned it all before. We had all the routes, the days, the drops planned, where we have to meet roughly, I mean, within, you know, 10, 20 kilometers. So it was very, very carefully planned. And also, we, you know, we did pass through areas of population. So we'd pass through a town with a market and that would also be planned. So we, we knew before we went when we would be reprovisioning and we stuck to it more or less. Um, and in terms of variety, I mean, what I've described to you was our meals. You know, we might substitute the vegetable stew in the evening for pasta with tomato sauce. There wasn't a huge amount. We, we had a lot of the same thing every day, but it was always you know, good. And in a salad, if one day you have sweet corn and one day you have bean sprouts, that's a little bit of variety. Let's, let's get off the trail <laughs> okay. and, um, and let's talk a little bit about just common everyday Moroccan food. You're up in the Atlas mountains. I would imagine that it's, uh, you know, a different type of cuisine. What is, what is a daily meal like when you're living in, uh, Imlil? with your other families in the compound? I'm living in a, it's a rural community and they're sustainable. They've all got their own plot of land. So people grow their own vegetables. Um, the Moroccans are extremely fussy about their food. They're not adventurous. They like things done the way granny did it, but they're very, very fussy about how their food is produced and how they, how they use it. So for example, in my family, um, they, grow the wheat in their field they bring it up to the house and they dry it at the house once they've harvested they then take it to the local mill and they get it ground and that's the flour that they use to bake their bread every day so you know they they consider me ridiculous for going to the supermarket to buy flour they're like <laughs> alice that flour has no nutrition in it you know you need to be using flour like we are and is there a communal bread oven or does each home have their own bread oven to cook bread in? Each of in the, again, don't forget, I'm in a rural community. In the cities, there are rural bread, uh, there are communal bread ovens in the rural areas where you have lots of space. Everybody has their own bread oven. Um, and now most of them are gas, but most people also have a clay bread oven that they use to make a very special kind of bread called tanurt, which is a dough. You, you put charcoal coals and burn them inside this beehive-shaped oven. 
Um, so it's like a beehive. And what you do is you spread the dough around the back wall of the beehive. So like a, a big round splodge against the back wall. And then you brick up the door until it's ready. And then you take the bricks off, you peel the bread off, and it's crunchy on the outside and soft on the inside. Oh, fantastic. Tenort. It's really nice. Oh, man, that mm, sounds great. It's so great. And what what other types of dishes would you be having at your uh, at your rural community? Very simple. I mean, people really eat a lot of so they eat a lot of carbs. Um, typically, you'll have a bit of breakfast. Then there'll be a second breakfast around ten o'clock, eleven o'clock. After the men have gone off to work, the men will have theirs somewhere else. The women all get together and they'll make fresh pancakes um, and they'll use fresh butter churned themselves from the cow who lives under my bedroom <laughs> fresh wild honey from the hives which they keep on the mountain um everything is homemade and it you know you're really looked down upon if you buy things it really has to be homemade so they'll eat these kind of very sweet and also olive oil pressed from the trees which come just from down the valley everything's local everything's organic everything's made at home and then for lunch People eat simply maybe an egg or again bread. Bread is a huge staple. It's a poor, it's, you know, it's not a rich place. People eat carbohydrate because it's cheap. So sweet tea, tea with lots of sugar and lots and lots of bread. And bread is baked every single day by the women for their families. And women are judged on their bread very much so. You know, she bakes good bread. She's a good woman, kind of thing. Mm. Um, and then for dinner again, often as I said, really vegetable stew. Or vegetable stew, you know, vegetable tagine. You've all heard of a tagine, of course, sure. which is just stew made in a pointy pot. Um, maybe with a little bit of chicken or a little bit of meat. Um, sometimes you'll have a whole chicken. That's kind of a, if there's a big event on. But people eat little, eat lots of carbohydrate and lots of vegetables, potatoes, carrots, onions and turnips is your staple dish. Also lentils. That's another popular one. And eggs. And they're growing these potatoes, these onions, these turnips, all of them, they're growing on these little plots of land that they have outside yeah. of the village. Any other yeah. any other vegetables that they grow uh, consistently that uh, you've enjoyed? Courgettes, courgettes, beans, peas, every every vegetable, um, aubergine, the vegetables, the normal vegetables that we all eat, cauliflower are very popular, cabbage is very popular. Um, things like spinach and kale are not popular at all. You don't get them at all. Um, which is interesting, but yeah, it's very, and then where I live, it's an incredible, um, incredibly rich agricultural area for orchards. So we have cherries, pears, peaches, um, walnuts, almonds. It's really fantastic for those fruit and nut trees. And those are also cash crops for the farmers. Uh, there's, a, there's actually a trading floor in Walnuts in Imlil. So people will buy a tree as on speculation. So they'll, they'll buy the crop of the tree in August, even though it's going to be harvested in November and they'll pay up front. Yeah. Which is a way for everyone to win. The farmer gets a little bit of money up front. And if you have a good year, you get a bounty of a harvest of walnuts yeah. later in the year. It's fantastic. It's kind of, it's like a, a, you know, the Dow Jones or I don't know what you have in America, but it's a trading floor for walnuts. No, it's a, it's a deal. You know, the merchants come up and they're all like looking at the trees and saying, I'll pay you that much for that one. It's very, I find that very fascinating. The walnut Jones industrial average of, uh, exactly. of nuts. <laughs> the other thing I haven't mentioned is for the children, you know, they all drink milk from the cow. Um, and also the other 
thing that's quite important in most people's diet is dates, which as oh, we yeah, all know are a, a superfood. So, for example, I, I said on the trek we ate soup, but we also ate dates with that soup. We'd eat four dates or five dates with the soup. And dates are a, a strong part of the Moroccan diet. And really, if you're eating bread and dates, that's going to keep you going quite well. Yeah, sugar and carbohydrates. There's yeah. there's super energy right yeah. there to keep you working yeah. on the farm or baking bread all day yeah. long. Um, when, when I think of Morocco, one of the things I think about is Moroccan spices, um, specifically yeah. uh, Ras El Hanout. And I'm just wondering, are there different spice blends in the area where you are? Do folks grow their own spices? Do they go and they buy spices and mix them together? How does that work exactly? So again, quite interesting. People tend to so say what say where I live. People would buy the spices. They wouldn't grow. They they would grow their own herbs. And when you go to the local market, people every Saturday there's a market in the market town where everybody, all the producers from all over the area, come with their produce, and you you go and buy the produce, and it's all seasonal. So you know it'll be cherries in April and peaches in May, uh, for example. Um, and the staples of the potatoes, etc. But there's always fresh herbs, and you can buy a whole, um, a massive bunch of mint or of of thyme for say a dollar, and you would use that in teas and in cooking. But in terms of spices, what people do again, I find it's the same idea of they're so picky about their stuff, so they will buy the cumin, kind of in its its quite a natural state, the seeds. They will dry it at home. So they'll dry it out in the courtyard themselves and then they will sort through it to get out any dodgy bits of cumin and then they'll grind it themselves. So they won't go and buy ground cumin. They they want to wash it, mill it and have that kind of overseeing of the actual production of the spice. And a lot of things are like that. I think I might be uh, part Moroccan somewhere because I, I had the same kind of philosophy with uh, my chili chili powder that I used to make. I would grow all the peppers, grow the spices, dry them myself, grind them myself, mix them myself in a very specific ratio to get it how I wanted it. And then every Christmas I'd give out chili powder for, uh, <laughs> for a Christmas That's so nice. <laughs> but I mean, but, you, you get the whole thing. It's really important actually to have the quality. It gives you quality. It, it does. And also it gives you a real feeling of satisfaction because you can say, ah, that was made with those particular cayenne peppers that I grew that year, or yeah. this one was made with habanero peppers. So Very, very cool. Of course, Morocco is an Islamic country and... You know, I've, I've talked to folks in Islamic countries and been surprised at the fact that alcohol is consumed. Um, I My assumption was, as a Westerner who's ignorant of these things, that there was no alcohol consumed. And I, I imagine it's that way in many Islamic countries. But some that I've spoken to, folks from these places, there is alcohol consumed. What's the story in Morocco? Is alcohol uh consumed is it frowned upon is it illegal it's legal it's not illegal there are some vineyards in morocco actually which also oh, wow. export wine yeah there are um it's i live in a rural community in the cities some of the young men will consume alcohol very few young women but some will but it's not common it's really not common it's really for middle or upper classes it's, you know, where people have been to university in France or mm. whatever, it is, do it is definitely looked down upon. 
Um, it's not cool. And yeah, it's a lot easier not to drink it. I mean, you're not, I would, I, I, I'm teetotal anyway, but it would be extremely difficult, difficult for me to live where I live and drink alcohol. Mm -hmm. People wouldn't understand why I was doing it and they wouldn't respect it and they wouldn't respect me. So, uh, Alice, before we let you go, yes. one thing that I think about often is how festivals and food intersect with each other. And I talk about this all the time on the podcast, so I wanted to ask you about it. What kind of festivals happen in Morocco, and are there specific foods that are consumed during that time? Well, absolutely. Festivals and food are so important. And one of the lovely things that I've done in, and it sounds so difficult, but it was really an amazing experience and I'll be doing it again, I hope next year, is Ramadan, as you know, for a month, Muslims fast. And that means they don't eat or drink or swallow between the hours of four o'clock in the morning and roughly half past seven at night. So nothing passes your lips. Wait a minute. Um, no, no swallowing. N not including, no, you're, you're not, not including like saliva in your mouth. You're not meant to. Really? You, you can. Yeah, okay. but you're meant to. You're meant to not, and you don't drink anything. That's the thing. So really, it's, okay. it's extremely difficult to adhere to this for a month, as you can imagine. Yes, I can. Um, but, <laughs> but, but the point is, when you do it, so I did it with my community because I live with all these people, and I'm not going to be sitting there drinking a cup of coffee when they can't have anything till half past seven. Of course. Yeah. So I fasted with them for the month of Ramadan. And what that meant was every I didn't want to break the fast on my own. I live on my own, but it would be really sad to you know, it's such a time of celebration because what happens at Ramadan, it's like Thanksgiving and Christmas every day, except for without lots of food, because the food is still quite modest. But you basically, you all break the fast, you hear the call to prayer, and then you do the following things. And it's, it's a celebration every night, you drink some milk, and eat some dates. And then everyone has a glass of water. And then you eat whatever the special meal is for that night. And you you have things like one of the ones that I really think is delicious, it's a vermicelli noodle with shredded chicken and it's flavoured with cinnamon and nutmeg, always cumin, and then also sprinkled slightly with icing sugar. Hmm. So that's one of the celebration foods that I really think is very delicious for me and you often eat that at Ramadan um, because every night when you break the fast, it's a mini celebration. I have to imagine that when you've gone through this, a whole day of not eating and not drinking, when you finally break that fast, the food must taste amazing. It does taste amazing. And, you know, I broke the fast with my neighbor, my lovely Lala Fatima, who's like my age, but she's, you know, a traditional Moroccan woman. She's had 10 children. And but she says, she says, I don't have a sister, Alice. Will you be my sister? She's adorable. <laughs> oh, nice. And with her and her daughters and the granddaughters, and it's this lovely community, the men eat separately. So we'd all be sitting in the back kitchen on these low stools, waiting to eat our food. And the feeling of solidarity and community is unbelievably strong because you've all been this through this thing together. You've got food ready, you're sitting together to eat it. And then you eat it and you feel immediately better because you don't feel well by the end of the day. Truthfully, I usually have a terrible headache. Yeah. I feel, you know, weak, sweaty, kind of just awful, dehydrated, of course. And the minute you have that first something, you feel much better. You know, the first date and a glass of water and you're revived and then everyone's happy and cheerful. And it's Ramadan, you know, it's a celebration. It's a holy month. Everyone's into it. It's lovely. 
So food is very important in those celebrations, both the denial of it and then the having of it. I think that's a really nice place to end our conversation on, that feeling of community and solidarity. And I think you've really painted a vivid picture of what life is like for you in the Atlas Mountains of Morocco. So I say thank you to you, Alice Morrison, and I'm really looking forward to following you and your future adventures. Where's the best place for other folks to follow you, follow along with uh, what you're up to, with your books, with your travels? Oh, well, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for having me. It's just such a pleasure to talk about my 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 adopted homeland. Um, you can follow me on alicemorrison.co.uk. I'm Alice out there, one on Instagram and Twitter. I'm on Facebook. My books, you can get them on Amazon. And Adventures in Morocco has quite a lot about nomads and the Atlas Mountains and has lots of bits of food in it as well. And they're available on Amazon, but you can find them through my website, alicemorrison.co.uk. Perfect. Thank you, Alison. We look forward to following your adventures as you travel more through Morocco and across Africa. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, there you go. Me and Alice talking about the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. We've got links to Alice's website and her books in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED142. And we didn't even get to talk about Alice's podcast, Alice in Wonderland. That's how I first learned about her. We've got a link to that in the show notes, too. She's just started season two of Alice in Wonderland. It's a great podcast. Listen to that. Well, that'll put another award-winning episode in the books. Next week, we're talking about chilies and craft beer in Denver. Don't miss that. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I've got foodie travel guides to cities all over the world, travel tips, and my blog, too. I just posted an article about the cool music artist walk of fame in Athens, Georgia. Yep, REM, B-52s, and... Lots of folks you probably haven't heard of on that Walk of Fame in Athens. Get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Camel Wrangler Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.